0: Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. We're in Ecclesiastes again today, so chapter 5 is where we'll be, and I'll invite this morning's reader to come up and to read from Ecclesiastes chapter 5 to you.
1: If you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter, for a high official watches over high official, and higher officials are over them. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owner except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt, but those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came and he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Here's what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink, and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him. For it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart.
0: The Wall Street Journal states that Americans spend about 1.2 trillion a year on non-essential items. According to the LA Times, the average American household has some 300,000 items that can be found inside of it. The U.S. Department of Energy joins our joyful conversation, adding that one out of every four houses with a two-car garage keeps so much stuff inside the garage that they can't fit a single car inside of it. Judging by the chuckles, you might be a part of that. 25 percent and let's not overlook the storage self-storage industry that's booming right now and it's being referred to as one of the fastest growing sectors of the u.s economy with reports saying that just about one in ten americans now uses utilizes self-storage the mordor intelligence group which is the greatest name of an intelligence group ever They predict that the self-storage market will exceed $115 billion annually by 2025. As of 2023, self-storage has grown to more than 1.7 billion square feet of space across the continental U.S. According to the Statistic Brain Research Institute, that area is big enough for every American, all 336 million of us, to stand under the rooftops of self-storage facilities at the same time. Now I know what you're thinking though. We're not really materialistic. (laughs) You see, we as Americans, we just really like our stuff and we've got a lot of stuff. We've got a $100 billion worth of annual payments to keep our stuff that we neither access nor use with any regularity. With that kind of money, do you know that we could collectively annually purchase Costa Rica, the Louvre Museum in France, while also saving the Great Barrier Reef with the leftover pocket change. Or maybe instead we co- could collectively throw that money towards complex glo- global issues like hunger and malnutrition, with a team of economists saying that an annual investment of just $3 billion, remember we're talking about an industry of self-storage to the tune of $115 billion a year with just $3 billion we could reduce malnutrition by 36% globally, saving over 100 million children from starvation every year. Instead, though, the latest wave of trendy reality shows is something maybe that's caught your eye too, and it's about vocational home organizers who can help you organize all that stuff, thankfully leaving you ro- mo- excuse me room for even more stuff. And it's funny because we love it. As a society, we're eating it up, so now the reality TV powers that be are making spin-off shows one after another on every major network. You see, the saddest thing about it is that we know that stuff can't give us lasting satisfaction. Oh sure, the latest and greatest iPhone is a fun purchase until we find that it's no longer the latest and greatest. Oh yes, we all love a new car, but its novelty we find only lasts about the length of time that the coveted new car smell lingers. And then we find that our new car, our new ride, is no longer turning the heads of others to admire it. For many of us, an increase in pay provides an opportunity for our lifestyle to adjust with that new income level, allowing us to happily step up and into the next tier of a neighborhood, simultaneously leaving us stressed and stretched beyond our limits yet again. I mean, can we all agree that we live in a materialistic age in society? I read an article by The Atlantic that asked the question, can there be a less materialist American dream? It was an interview with a professor. Her name was Juliette Score, and she's the co-founder for the Center for a New American Dream, as well as the author of the book, and I quote, The Overspent American, Why We Want What We Don't Need. And she asserts that the problem is this, that materialism is the other person's disease. That's how she classifies it. Materialism is... Quote unquote, the other person's disease. So what she's found is that 80 percent of people think that Americans are too materialistic, but people hold contradictory attitudes because people who, by almost anyone's accounting, would be considered extremely materialistic and and living a lavish lifestyle, can find themselves being very critical of other people's materialism while failing to see it in their own life. Remember, materialism is this other person disease. It's an issue we'd say. It's just not my issue, it's their issue. The irony this week for me is that while I was studying for this and beginning to scratch out some notes while reading, I went to a local coffee shop and, and hadn't planned this, but found myself situated to where my body was positioned facing the door of the local UPS store and watching for the couple of hours I was there reading and scratching out notes, the line continuing to be filled with people who were standing in line to ship back Amazon Amazon boxes back to Amazon because their purchases did not meet their expectations. The irony truly was, though, when all of a sudden I heard a little voice that said, Hey, Dad, we didn't know you were here. And there was my own family with six boxes in their arms. As my daughter Riley had just celebrated her birthday and received some shipments of gifts and none of it fit, and so there she was, as I'm trying to think of these other people and their materialism. Hey, can we all agree that we live in a materialistic age in society? Can we admit that we, too, are instilled with the materialistic mindset and value system? Or maybe most importantly, can we all see that this materialistic thinking and living, that it's an empty pursuit, fueled by comparison and ingratitude, and producing all sorts of broken patterns in our lives and culture? Are we all on the same page that this is really broken and messy? And yet it seems like it just is the way that it is. You see, as we've walked through Ecclesiastes together, we've been asking along with the preacher, the voice of Ecclesiastes, we've been asking what makes for the good life. And the truth is that for many of us, our experience under the sun is lived with the belief that if I only had more stuff, then I'd be satisfied. If I only had more money, a bigger house, a newer car, a larger bank account, then and only then, Would my life feel satisfactory? And the preacher will be for us our spokesman and figurehead who today yells back at us, no, he won't. You won't be more satisfied because he's going to tell us, I had it all and it failed to produce what we had all hoped that it would produce. Quoting from his own words here in chapter 5, verse 10 from the English Standard Version, he says it this way, he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is vanity. Remember vanity, that word hevel in Hebrew, it's it's the word that speaks of a, a puff of smoke. It's here in an instant and gone in the next. It's temporary, but it's also like a puff of smoke, something that can be seen but not grasped, something that can be seen and experienced but not taken hold of. He's saying that this is all what it is. This is vanity. You see, our preaching king from the line of David has long been assumed to be King Solomon who's speaking to us. But as we've learned in our journey with him, searching for meaning and purpose for life under the sun as he refers to it, we've learned that there's a second preaching king from the line of David whose voice we need to hear chime in and answer back to the original preacher. So today we'll discuss what both of these preaching kings tell us about wealth and materialism, First, what Solomon says to us, but also what the future king and preaching king, descendant of David, his name is Jesus, what Jesus has to say about wealth and materialism as well. Specifically talking about Jesus' interaction with the one that we call the rich young ruler. So today what we'll see is that the voice of Ecclesiastes, he lifts his head away from where we left him last time, remember his loneliness, he lifts his head away from off of himself and his loneliness, and now focuses squarely onto the wealth that he'd worked so hard to amass, but what he finds is that it's far less than he had hoped for. And what he reports back to us is the truth about materialism. He'll tell us that a materialistic life does three things, or or three things about a materialistic life. The first is that it's corrosive. The second is that it's insatiable. And then the third thing he points out in our text really clearly is that it's fleeting. It's corrosive, insatiable, and fleeting. So first, look at how he communicates the corrosive nature of wealth reading again from this passage beginning in verse eight from the New Living Translation, he says, don't be surprised if you see a poor person being oppressed by the powerful and if justice is being miscarried out throughout the land. For every official is under orders from higher up and matters of justice get lost in red tape and bureaucracy. Even the king milks the land for his own profit. Are you seeing the point the preacher's making here as he begins this passage or this little vignette that we find before us? As he's talking about wealth and power, his point is that it, it consistently seems to create systems of injustice, where all throughout history, the rich get richer, while the poor and needy are exploited. You see, the first thing he points out to us here, the, the preaching voice of Ecclesiastes, is the corrosive nature of wealth. You see, wealth, status, and power seemingly have the ability and tendency to animate the worst aspects of our humanity that otherwise seem to lay dormant. And maybe it's because at some point in time, you feel like you reach a certain level of power, and then you think that the rules no longer apply to you. As I thought about this this week, it was, my mind went back to our own governor here in California, who during stay-at-home orders, where we were all quarantining and sheltering in place, photos surfaced of his public birthday party in a very fancy restaurant. My mind went to the highest offices, both of well-known corporations and even the federal government, and the godless and despicable trend of sexual scandal and abuse by those who are in power who seem to wiggle their way out from under penalty or prison time. I thought of the scandalous patterns of abuse and power even from pulpits, of prominent Christian leaders who have lived without accountability or humility or restraint. Make no mistake, the church is not exempt from the corrosive dangers of power. The scriptures rightly say that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And we would be wise not to be so dismissive in saying, yes, but Trevor, I don't love money. So it's not a problem for me. I just worry about it, want more of it, exhaust myself trying to acquire it, catch myself trying to stockpile it, catch myself thinking and dreaming about it, and naturally seem to build my identity around it. But no, I don't love it. But does our materialistic drive kind of prove otherwise? Or does our love for a good deal, even if it's at the expense of a sweatshop worker, demonstrate that we love our money and things more than we love people? In the great Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Treasure is different from currency. Currency is what we hold as a means to an end, a means of buying and selling and trading. Treasure is something that we esteem for itself, not for what it can bring or acquire. Our problem is that we, like Schmeagel and the Lord of the Rings, can become so enchanted by a thing or by things that it becomes more than a thing. It's a treasure, a thing valued, protected, and loved, our precious, we'd say, that we can no longer imagine life without. Oh, we'd never do that, we might think. But may I suggest that your fears may reveal your true treasure even more than your joys do. Let me say it this way. You you might say, I don't love this or that, really that much, but can you imagine your life without it? Or when you imagine your life without it, how do you feel? And what would you do to keep from losing it? Whether it be your home or your car, your savings account, your retirement portfolio or all of your stuff. We can look the direction of those with greater wealth and, and power and point at them to talk about their injustice and the corrosive power of their wealth. But I think we have to be realistic about our own wealth and power and the impact that it can have in our own lives, corroding our own souls. Remember, after all, that we live in America's most expensive city once we surpassed the city of San Francisco last year. All the while, we still remain just 30 miles north of a border which on the other side has an unregulated minimum wage of just a dollar and five cents. Unfortunately, I think for us as San Diegans, we can quickly begin to sound a bit like the NBA legend Patrick Ewing, who when acting as the president of the Players Union in the late 1990s, he defended professional basketball players' push for more money in their collective bargaining agreement when he famously said, and I quote, people complain that pro athletes make a lot of money, but what they don't understand is that we need a lot of money because we spend a lot of money. Oh, it's easy for us to look at others who have more power and wealth than I do and to point at the corrosive impact it has on them, all the while giving myself a pass and a get-out-of-jail-free card in regard to my own issues and its corrosive impact in my own heart. Here's the real irony, is that you and I probably secretly long for wealth and fame and fortune but we'd be wise to see it admit that it might be the absolute worst thing for us because of its corrosive power in the human heart. I mean, how many of us have seen a family divided when the death of, of a patriarch or a matriarch, uh, of a parental figure takes place and now they're sitting around a table together or even just on a, a call together, having to talk about the dividing of the inheritance and what does it do? It animates the ugliest parts of all of our hearts. We watch as it divides homes and families and the hardest and most tragic events in life that we stand in opposition to each other to make sure that we get what's mine, to make sure we get what's coming to us. I assume we'd all agree with the old adage that power corrupts and that absolute power corrupts absolutely, but consider this with me. Is it really that power corrupts us, or is it that our own sinful and selfish hearts corrupt power? We know that power seems to consistently animate the worst parts of the human heart, and yet we would kind of like the opportunity to see if it would have the same impact on us because surely we think, I think it'd be different with me than it is for other people. You see, our preacher begins by telling us that we shouldn't be surprised by the corrosive and distorting impacts that wealth and power have over people, especially in those in leadership over us. I hope that you're seeing that that's his first thing he points out, the corrosive power of materialism, of wealth. But here's what's amazing. The voice of Ecclesiastes had no way of seeing something that we've seen. He had no way of seeing that the perfect ruler would come Hundreds of years later that the preaching king we call Jesus would come and live a perfect, righteous, and just life and yet would face the ultimate injustice when those in positions of power would use that power to unjustly put him to death by sentencing him, sending him to a cross. Jesus would endure the ultimate injustice of the death of the innocent in place of the guilty in order to rescue us and free us from these broken cycles and systems and patterns of injustice. And that doesn't just change my eternal destination, making me reconciled with God and having a future home in heaven. No, that changes my experience, my reality in the here and now, freeing me from this constant feeling of an approval deficit that causes me to use wealth, and influence and power at every turn as a way to prove myself as better than or worthy of the thing that I most long for. Because I long to be known and loved. And I find that in Jesus. You see, I no longer need the shallow bandage. I use my stuff in other people that covers my insecurity when the perfect love of God so soothes and heals the insecurities and deficits that exist inside of me. As one author put it, he said, in Jesus we finally found what our hearts long for, power controlled by love. You see, the words of the second preaching king from the Lion of David are recorded for us in his great Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said that no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You know what he said? He said, you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon was the name of the ancient evil deity of wealth. Connecting wealth, think of this, for ancient cultures and societies, to connect wealth to this entity, to a transcendent being, was a way for them to describe the corrosive power that wealth had on the human heart that it was demanding loyalty from. You see, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he's pointing out the corrosive nature of wealth. But the second thing he points out to us is the insatiability of wealth. The insatiability of wealth. That our desire for stuff is never satiated. Our pursuit of status is never appeased. Our hunger for wealth and power will never be quenched or soothed as long as we continue to feed it. Or as the preacher in Ecclesiastes states in verse 10, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver nor he who loves abundance with increase. This is vanity, he says. Remember, it's Hebel. It's a puff of smoke. It's an enigma, he's saying. We're chasing something that doesn't satisfy. The real enigma is that we're hundreds of years later still doing it. That for thousands of years of human history, this is how people have lived and we still haven't learned yet. You see, the preacher continues in verse 11. He says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not even permit him to sleep. This is a severe evil, he says. Do you hear his his angst here, his frustration? It's a man who's, who's amassed wealth and now he can't sleep at night, at night and he's angry, saying, this is a severe evil which I've seen of the sun. Rich is kept for their owner to his hurt. Do you see the observation he's making? It said, a man who has little has very little to worry about, but a man who has much carries it like a burden. Both in the day, while he navigates the complexity of managing his wealth and managing those who work on his land and with his livestock, and he's watching them, it says in verse 11, he's watching them continue to devour what he has as he's paying for them to work for him. And he's carrying it like a burden even at night when he cannot sleep because he's worried about his wealth and the complexity involved in managing it and safeguarding it. This is why he says, verse 13, This is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun, riches kept for their owner to his hurt. The severe evil is not that. More never equates to enough. It's that and That the wealthy are often burdened by their wealth, he says. It's funny because I think that wealth, if I had more resources, that it would be freeing for me. Where this man is saying from experience, it's just not the case. More never equates to enough, and the more I get, the more burdened, weighed down I feel. See, the insatiability of wealth is the point of the preacher. Think back to Jesus' words then, as a contrast to this. When Jesus would say... He'd say that it's difficult for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Those words should like kind of actually rattle us a little bit, don't you think? It's kind of a wild statement by Jesus. It's difficult for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. You remember the context of that comment, it's, Jesus had just been approached by a man that we refer to as the rich young ruler. He's rich. He's wealthy. He's young. It's telling you he's good looking. He's in good health. He's a ruler. He's respected by other people. But he came to Jesus because it wasn't enough. He's still lacking something. He needed more. He's asking, what else do I need? What is it that I lack, good teacher?" It's interesting because Jesus didn't chase him down trying to convince him that there is this thing, this internal emptiness that you ought to feel that you're trying to cover up, and Jesus trying to convince him that there was more that he needed. That's not how the story played out. That man sought Jesus out. He had everything all of us could have ever written as a script for our life and said, this is what I want and need. He had it all, and yet he's freely admitting his emptiness and inability to remedy that emptiness to Jesus, saying, what can I do? see, there's a deep longing in every human heart for what no human can create or conjure up or cure, a longing for what God alone can give, but the bridge to get to what God gives is a pathway called humility. We must be able and willing to see ourselves, Jesus would teach us, as simply a child in need of the provision of another for us. Those who are successful in their own eyes tend to find that to be the most offensive aspect of the gospel. To find grace as deeply offensive. You see, ancient cultures, as well as our modern 21st century culture, are guilty of using success and wealth and money as a scorecard of sorts. Success is not a display of heaven's report card for you, a sign of heaven's approval if you have it, and disapproval if you don't. Nor is, it, is success meant to be a cultural scorecard that we utilize to compare ourselves to other people. You see, su- success, though, clouds your view and inhibits you from seeing the deepest and truest thing about you, which is your deep and utter depravity and need for God, need for rescue. When we see that clearly, we are freed from the lifelong trap that exists in our culture of using our wealth, our influence, our power, and our success as a scorecard rather than as a resource, a resource that we can steward. Be careful, my friends, to resist the innate desire that the culture seems to push us towards to view our money as a report card or a scorecard. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would teach that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's answering the question of who are the blessed ones? Who are the insiders? Who are those who belong in your kingdom? And he doesn't say the rich in virtue, the rich in resources, the the rich in knowledge, Not, not the successful, the renowned, the admired. He said the poor in spirit belong. Jesus clearly did not adhere to the presumption that prosperity and success is a proof of God's divine favor. Jesus taught in the parable of the sower, in fact, that prosperity and success can be dangerous in that it can be deceptive and blind us to our need for a Savior. Here's how he says it in Mark chapter 4. In that parable, he says, Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. And the desires for other things enter in, choking out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Please don't miss this. The story of Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler does not teach us that Jesus is excluding the rich on account of their wealth itself. The issue is not that this young man had wealth, that he had riches. It was that his riches held him captive. His riches had him. He had lost himself in his success. His identity was tethered to it. His security and significance were wrapped up in all that he had. He could not release then his hold on his wealth because he feared what would be left of himself without it. That is the deception and the danger of riches, of success. So Jesus tells that man and no one else in the Gospels to go and sell all that he has and give it to the poor. And it tells you that his response was that his face fell and he went away from Jesus very sorrowful for he had great wealth. You see, success has a way of setting a trap for us. And this man remained stuck inside the clutches of his success at the expense of his soul because his identity was so wrapped up in his success that he was blind to his need for a savior. For him to leave his wealth would be to lose his sense of self. Because he was, after all, the rich young ruler, they called him. His identity was wrapped up in his wealth and success. That's why he couldn't leave his riches. It's because his money had become more than so much more than just money. It was his security and significance. If he let it go, what would be left of himself? Augustine, the early church father, he wrote and said this. Such, O my soul, are the miseries that attend to riches. They are gained in toil and kept with fear. They are enjoyed with danger and lost with grief. It is hard to be saved if we have them and impossible if we love them. And scarcely can we have them without loving them tremendously. Teach us, O Lord, this difficult lesson to manage consciously the goods we possess and not covetously desire more than you'd give us. The preacher here, he's pointing out for us to look at the corrosive nature of wealth and then the insatiability of wealth. But then there's a final thing and then we'll transition to communion and that's the fleeting reality of wealth. The fleeting reality of wealth. You see, the preacher in Ecclesiastes points out to the fleeting reality here. In verse 14, he describes the disappointing reality that many of you have already experienced in life that a single event can wipe it all out in one foul swoop. That event might not have even been something by your own design or your own choice. It's not even like, for some of you, it was a bad business deal. For some of you, it was the collapse of the housing market that wiped you out. For others, it was the crash of digital currency that wiped you out. For the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he's pointing out that a single storm could sink the ship that your wealth or resources were being transported on. It's a single caravan that could be robbed and left in ruin. It's just a single year of drought that could collapse the whole economic system that you benefited from. And I think this is the point of this whole passage and message. Do you understand that wealth and stuff cannot bear the weight either of your identity or security? That God did not give them the strength, it the strength, to bear the weight, to bear up under the weight of your identity and your security? Hear me please, materialistic lifestyles not only collapse under the weight of our identity, they also fail miserably at shouldering the weight of the security that we as humans so deeply need. We need security. Because wealth is insecure, as Jesus referred to it. It's it's something that's rust and is moth eaten. Again, quoting from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I went for a run one day this week and was listening to a podcast from a friend's uh, church here in San Diego who is also, also taking his church on a long, joyful journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. And um, They actually just recently wrapped up their series Uh, but I so appreciated something he shared that just kind of sparked something in my own head and heart that I've been chewing on all this week. Because what he did is he just pointed out something that the writer in Ecclesiastes here is highlighting. He pointed out that humanity was not originally created with the capacity or even the language for, or even the foundational thinking that would lead to building your identity based on the clothes you wore or the things that you had. Because Adam and Eve lived naked and unashamed. Think about this. With nothing to identify themselves with or as other than as the beloved creation of God who walked with them as a loving father, they were naked and unashamed. There was nothing in place that would have given birth to the thought that that they were to build their identity on the kinds of clothes that they wore or the kinds of things that they had or kind of wealth that they could try to amass. They were naked and unashamed. They literally had nothing that they could look to to hold the weight of their identity. They had nothing on their backs, and they held nothing in their hands. This is how God designed humans to live and find their identity, which is not me suggesting that you find your local nudist colony and join. (laughs) Instead, I'm suggesting that you'd be freed from the entrapments of trying to build an identity based on the clothes you wear, the jewelry you flash, the car you drive, or the house you call home, because you... Who you really are is what's left when all of that is stripped away. And if that's a terrifying thought, if I lost all of that, who would I be? Can I tell you who you are? If all of that was stripped away, beneath all of that, you are the one that God crafted in his own image, intricately loves, passionately pursues, and is determined to bring home again, even at great cost and expense to himself, allowing his son to bleed to death in your place. See, as the writer of Ecclesiastes reminds you in verse 15, naked if we come into this world, and naked and empty-handed is how we're going to depart from it. Please hear me, human wealth and possessions were never built to sustain the weight of one's identity. It's a fool's errand to try to build a life and identity upon this fragile economic system and to try to build it upon wealth that rusts. To build an identity based on how fast your car goes or how big your house is or what name brand is on the tag of what you wear is just a silly new form of sewing fig leaves together to cover your nakedness and shame. I believe that it can look so very different here, though, in a place where the gospel is central. You see, every other place you go, it's a comparison game where your wealth is your your scorecard that you compare with other people. But thousands of years later, on this side of Eden's walls, I believe that we are still answering God's original question from the garden. And his first question to humanity was simply, where are you? Will we take off the metaphorical fig leaves and allow Jesus' power and grace to be an even better covering for our brokenness? Oh, just know that he can't cover you, though, until you allow yourself to be exposed. You see, in a gospel-centered place and community, such as this, a church. I think we can live freely in vulnerability with our brokenness and shortcomings remaining visible to others around us. We can be freed from our desire to constantly cover up with everything and anything we can grasp. You see, we don't have to hide behind our stuff or economic status or a new car or any other faulty covering for our insecurity. We know that we stand on equal footing here. Because we don't stand on a bank account, we stand upon the equal footing of spiritual depravity, of bankruptcy. And as we often say here, we know that that the gospel tells us that we are far worse than we had imagined while simultaneously finding ourselves to be far more loved than we'd ever hoped or dreamed. Broken enough that God did not send us an instruction manual to fix it all, broken enough that he needed to die, and yet simultaneously loved enough that he was willing to die. You see, that is both how God sees us and how we are invited to see one another here. And if that's true, what a gift this place can truly be with a culture that's shaped by the gospel, where you no longer hide behind a veneer or chase the Joneses or try to stand up on the height of a retirement account in order to shield yourself and others from your insecurity and brokenness. No, Instead, you're welcomed in knowing that this is a place where you can be known and loved despite the brokenness. There's no need to sow those kinds of fig leaves in a silly attempt to provide ourselves with a covering when the truest thing about us is that we are broken beyond repair and yet loved beyond belief. This is how the gospel frees us from the entrapment of a materialistic culture. It doesn't just tell us to stop living this way. It frees us from its entrapment. Because it is just that, an empty trap, where more never equates to enough, where the fig leaves always itch and the bank account is never big enough. You see, your significance and security can never be extracted from something that's in flux and so fragile. But we have someone who's neither of those things. Remember today that the scriptures teach us that you and I, we're stewards, not owners. We're stewards of what God has entrusted to us. What we have comes from God. It's given by the grace of God. It belongs to God still, even when in my care, because I'm merely a steward, not an owner of it. And while the world is using people to gain things, we are meant to be countercultural, where we are willing to generously use our things to reach and get people. We're to to steward our things, knowing that they come from God and belong to him. We're to steward them to love on, bless, and care for people around us. My friend, you're not just preparing for retirement. We are preparing people for Jesus' everlasting kingdom. My friends, Jesus has broken the power and penalty of our sin nature at the cross, We must break the destructive pattern that started in Egypt, the destructive pattern of the choice to either hide or be exposed. But if we take off the metaphorical fig leaves, we can let Christ's power and grace be our even better covering for our hurt and brokenness than any materialistic veneer could ever provide for us. But he won't cover you until you allow yourself to be exposed. You see, the writer here is telling us of the fleeting reality of wealth. We were lied to when we were told that whoever dies with the most toys wins. My dad, when we were kids, he used to tell us when we'd see that bumper sticker that I believe it was the Forbes family, I believe, made that so popular. But when we'd see that as kids, my dad would often point out, he'd say, yes, but none of us has ever seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. And he's right. There's a fleeting reality to wealth. But maybe you'd question or or catch yourself questioning at times, but why does God seem to care so much about my money? And can I just tell you, he doesn't. He cares about the condition of your heart and your willingness to exercise faith. The real question is why do I care so much about my money? And why do I have a propensity to hoard what I have? You see, the truth is God and money are both after my heart. My attitude about my money may demonstrate which one actually has it. Which one has my heart? You see, it's good for us to slow down and ask ourselves if I viewed my relationship with my money, with my things, as being a steward of God's resources, would I live more generously than I do? If your security is your wealth, is your God then your materialism? If your security is your wealth, is your God then your money? As we transition now to approach the Lord's table together, I just want to remind you of that story we've gone back to a couple of times of Jesus with the rich young ruler. Because a part of that story from Mark's gospel tells us that as this young man approached Jesus, that Jesus looked at him and loved him. There was undoubtedly compassion in Jesus' eyes in that moment. But it also seemed like there was camaraderie in Jesus' heart. You see, Jesus knew firsthand what it was like to give up and give away, to leave all that he had, which is what he would ask of him. Jesus knew firsthand what it was like to feel that it cost you even a sense of self because soon Jesus will cry out from a cross to his father. But what he laid down as the rich young heir at heaven's throne was his right to that throne. One author said it this way. He said, what money was for him the father was for Jesus, the center of his identity, and what he was willing to give up. Jesus instead took our sin, our brokenness, our depravity, our wretchedness, so that we could become the co-heirs and eternal sons of the ruler of heaven and earth. By Christ laying down all that made him the rich young ruler of heaven he makes a way for us to forever share that title and position with him. That is the gospel, my friends. That Jesus was willing to take your place to exchange his wealth and resources, the resources of heaven, for the judgment that you and I deserve for our rebellion against God. That that he would take the place of the sinful so that we could sit in the position of the righteous. Righteous that he would be treated as an enemy so that we could be adopted in as sons. You see, my friends, today I want to remind you that our significance and security is found at the foot of the cross. A significance that was proven a security that's sure and unshakable. Significance and security that is so powerful that it can free you from the entrapment of our culture's materialism. And so, Jesus, this is where we we end today. We end by looking your direction. Jesus, we end by lifting a cup and the bread to give thanks. We we, We finish looking at the cross, the roots of our confidence, the roots of our security and significance. So, Jesus, we pray then free us from the entrapments of this culture. Free us from the brokenness inside of our own hearts. We pray that you'd calm and heal and soothe the insecurities, the fears that reside in each of our hearts. Jesus, lead us to the cross and meet us there, we pray in Jesus' name.